book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 28. And Lord Jesus, again, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the time of worship. Uh, thank You, Lord, just for pouring out on us of Your Spirit. Uh, thank You for the, for the strength that comes just in being in Your presence and singing songs to glorify Your name. It's marvelous, Lord. And I pray now Your Spirit would be our teacher. Uh, through Your Word, Father, may we hear You tonight and respond in our hearts, in our spirits, in our souls, in our bodies. May our lives be a response to Your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah 28, verse 1, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. And Sunday we entered the book of woes, chapter 28 through 33 of the book of Isaiah. So these next six chapters called the book of woes because the Lord gives one woe after another, beginning with Ephraim and moving on to Judah and then on to others. He gives woe after woe. But I remind you that these woes are of a godly grief. So often people look at God, especially God is revealed in the so-called Old Testament, and they get only a piece of the puzzle. They hear about the plagues, you know, or they hear about judgments, or they hear about that time in Beth Shemesh when the ark was opened and thousands upon thousands of Israelites died because they looked into the ark. And people hear of that and they say, oh, he's a God of judgment. And then they come to Isaiah 28 or other chapters and, and see the word woe and they go, here he goes, ready to judge. And that's just not it. In fact, it's a mistake to view God as some detached or unfeeling, judgmental, distant character up there who's just waiting to pounce, waiting to crush. When God says, woe, it is that Hebrew word we talked about Sunday, oi, and it is a, it is a godly grief. It is a sigh of sorrow. It is not a statement of joy. It is not God saying, whoa, I'm going to get you. It's God saying, whoa, whoa, Ephraim. My heart is broken. I am grieved at not only what I'm seeing, but at what I'm about to do. We need to come to the God of the Old Testament recognizing He is the God of the New Testament. He is the one and the same God as Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. We need to understand what is revealed in the New Testament is also revealed in the Old, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that is, first and foremost, above all other things, God is a God of love. If we understand God as a God of love, if we recognize His very character and nature is love, then everything that happens takes on a completely different meaning to it. Suddenly, woes are not judgment. They really are grief. As that of a father who truly cares and is heartbroken over what his children are doing, what they're deciding. Some of you as parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you're grieved over the decisions of your children and you ache and you wish that you could change the direction, but you also recognize they have to live with their choices. They have to come to some of this on their own. John says this about God. Beloved, he says, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You can't make it any more clear than that. He's a God of love. 
He is love incarnate. And so everything He does flows out of that. It flows from the place of love. John says in 1 John 4.16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. What does that mean? As He is love, so also we are love in this world. So that's the truth with which we have to approach all of these woes, any statements of judgment, in the context of the grieved heart of the God who is love. Isaiah begins with God's grief over the governmental leadership of Israel that we looked at on Sunday, Ephraim and the leadership there in Ephraim. He continues this godly grief over the spiritual leadership down in verse 7 of chapter 28. And I'm just skipping over this because we already covered the first 13 verses. But in chapter 7 he says, These also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. So not only the governmental leadership, not only the kings, the court, the rulers of the people of Ephraim, of northern Israel, but these also, the priest and the prophet, they reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. The spiritual leadership of Ephraim is messed up. God is heartbroken because not only is the government messed up, which we almost come to expect these days, but so is the spiritual leadership. The prophets, the priests, the pastors, the elders. He looks at them and he says, Whoa! In my opinion, the failure of spiritual leaders is far worse than the failure of political leaders. It's real easy to point at political leaders today because they're always on the television and they're always on the radio and we're always talking about their missteps and failures and their off-mic comments. (laughs) And yet, what about the spiritual leaders? This, I believe, is a greater woe. When Isaiah turns his sights on the spiritual leadership of northern Israel, on the priests and the prophets who are drunk even when giving their visions. Incredible. And it's not just drunken pride, it is drunken disdain for the holy word of God. It's treating the things that are holy as if they're debased. And gang, where the word of God is disdained, the Lord has to use harsher measures to reach the deaf ears and the blind eyes of His people. And so He does. Verse 11 says, Indeed, He will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. That is Assyria. He who said to them, here's rest, give rest to the weary. And here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord will be to them, Sav lat sav, sav lat sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. Order on order, line on line, little here, little there. That they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. The governmental leadership of northern Israel, the spiritual leadership of northern Israel, and now, at this point, the prophet turns his gaze closer to home. And the Lord begins to pour out woes, not for Ephraim, northern Israel, but for Judah, the southern kingdom. In fact, from here to the end of chapter 29, really, Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah, is speaking to both Judah and Ephraim, to all of the Jewish people. In fact, you can make the application, not just to the Jewish people of Isaiah's day, but the woe coming out of the heart of God is for all Jewish people of all time. And you'll see this very clearly. 
Now Isaiah is going to give, and I'll point, I'll pull these out, four word pictures that express the passionate love of God. Four word pictures, and if you're a note taker, you might want to jot these down or jot them in the side of your Bible if you want, but the first word picture we come to is that marvelous word picture of the precious cornerstone. Number one, the precious cornerstone. Verse 14. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, or literally, O scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we've made a covenant with death, and and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now, we're going to get to the precious cornerstone in just a minute. But a couple of things to note in verses 14 and 15. First off, when he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, there's another word play. And I like to point these out because Isaiah was such a master of words. When he says, O scoffers, O scornful men, he uses the Hebrew phrase, on shai latzon. And on shai latzon means men of scorn. But it's a wordplay because there's another phrase very close to it, on shai zion, men of zion. On shai latzon, on shai zion. What they would be called, the Jerusalemites, is men of zion. And if you were praising, encouraging, talking, speaking well of the people of Jerusalem, you'd say, on Shai Zion, men of Zion. But in this case, he says, on Shai Latzan, men of scorn. In verse 15, he says that they've made a, a covenant with death and a pact with Sheol. And what he's talking about there is the people's uh, reliance on foreign gods, on false idols. The covenant, the pact they've made, The deception, in fact, he uses two phrases here. We have made deception our refuge, and we've concealed our falsehood our refuge. We've concealed ourselves with deception. And falsehood and deception are two of Isaiah's favorite words for pagan idols. He uses these more than once. They are are twin words for pagan idols. By the way, the wind outside, let me just encourage you. The barn has been here for ten years in harsher wind than what's blowing tonight. So just think of it as the Holy Spirit really trying to get in and speak to us, and we'll be fine. Falsehood and deception, Isaiah says. These are his pet names, his pen names for idolatry. The Asherim, the Baals, the Molechs, foreign gods of of wood and stone. These are gods of deception and falsehood. Why? Because they don't do anything. They're iron, they're stone, they're wood. They don't do anything. And yet the people were turning to these idols. Now I want you to think about this because it's similar to sometimes how we approach church today. The people turn to the idols for quick fix. For for just a a band-aid. Or to help them out in a certain situation. Trouble in business? Call on bail. Problems with fertility? Go to the Asherah pole. International threats? Make sacrifice to Molech. How is that like today? Light a candle? Say a prayer. Rub a rabbit's foot. It's all the same. Show up and make sure you get communion on a Sunday morning so you have your grace points for the week. Turn to God when you just have the little issues in life that need fixing. The parallel problem today is what I would call quick fix faith. 
And it's not a faith that is walked out day by day over a long period of time. It's a faith that just shows up when there's an issue or a problem, and then you disappear again. It's religion of expediency. And there's a lot of it in our world. A religion of expediency. A program to save a marriage. Or perhaps a business plan for personal success. Or a spiritual self-help book because right now I have this issue in my life and I need to find peace and maybe there's an author who's written something about this. Instead of the consistent daily walk with Jesus who is long-term. You see, while people race out for temporary fixes, while the Israelites were rushing off for quick-fix idols, God's saying, I have something completely different for you. Not a plan or a program or a book. I have a person, I have a precious cornerstone who is solid and secure, one on whom you can stand always. Whether the wind is blowing and the rain is pounding or the sun is shining, you can stand on this precious cornerstone. God is calling His people, as He calls you and me, to a long-term relationship, not a quick fix. Which is why I'm absolutely convinced that God just hates religion. Because religion is all about fixing this problem here and that problem there and this problem over here. And guess what? More problems are right behind them. So the Lord says, how about this? A precious cornerstone. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Note that. I love this. Verse 16, after He's just said, you've made a covenant with death and with Sheol, you've made a pact. You're saying the overwhelming scourge will pass by. You're doing all these wrong things. What I would say at this point is, therefore, I'm done. I'm through with you. You're out. Clean out your locker. You're done. Your history. Bye-bye. But God says, therefore, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. God says, my response to your idolatry is to give you something better. To offer you something that so far surpasses what you're chasing after. A precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. A tested stone. The Hebrew word is bokan. It means tried and true or proven. This stone is secure. This stone is solid. It will not break up. It will not fade away. This stone is here for good. Tried and true. A tested stone. It's a costly stone. The Hebrew word is yakar which means precious and rare. You know, there's no one like Jesus. There is no one of His nature, no one of His character. There never has been, nor will there ever be someone who is both Son of Man and Son of God. Completely rare. A precious stone, Yakar. The stone is Christ the Messiah. This last time we were in Israel, we were at one of our favorite stops. Typically when we go on the Israel tour, we make our way to Caesarea Philippi. Those of you who have been, you know there's that massive rock face there, that edifice of stone that towers up above you. It's a great place to do Bible study because that's the place, Matthew 16, where we believe Peter made his great confession of Jesus. And it's where Jesus said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, Matthew 16, 18. Now, I was teaching on this just a couple of weeks ago, talking about Jesus making this comparison. And Jesus was so good as a master teacher of always drawing off the environment, using things that were right there, visuals for people to get what He was saying. 
And so as they stand there at Caesarea Philippi, called Banyas in Israel, the headwaters of the Jordan flow right out of this place. And as they stand there, and there's that huge rock, Jesus looks at Peter who's just said, You're the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Good answer. And I know it didn't come from you because you're not bright enough to figure that out. Now that's a paraphrase. But then Jesus says, You are Peter... And upon this rock I will build my church. Now you probably have heard me say this before. The Greek here is very telling. Because Jesus says you are Peter, Petros, pebble. And upon this rock, Petra, big rock, stone, I will build my church. And so I was teaching about this. And I was saying that it was the statement of faith in Christ that is the rock on which He will build His church. So it's your faith, it's my faith in Jesus, and and He will build His church on that faith in the rock. And I was so sure of myself until Mary Kennedy came up to me and she said, rather than it being faith in the rock, couldn't the rock just be Jesus? I've been thinking about that ever since Mary made that statement, and she's right. Jesus is the rock. My faith is nothing without the rock. And so when he says, on this rock I will build my church, you can almost imagine Jesus opening his hands and saying, on this rock, on the person, on the precious cornerstone. And this is used all the time, by the way, in the New Testament Scriptures. The New Testament writers and Jesus himself like to refer back to the Hebrew emphasis on the rock. Paul will say Christ is the rock. And they go back to this time and time again. That he's the rock, he's the costly cornerstone, He is the foundation on whom the church is built. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He's the stone. He's the foundation. Now, what Isaiah's prophecy does here, as he talks about it, as the Lord reveals this costly cornerstone for the foundation, Isaiah shifts the entire focus away from religion of any kind and puts it squarely on the person of Messiah. He is the costly cornerstone. This is not about a religious faith. This is about a person, the precious cornerstone himself, who is Jesus. And this marvelous messianic prophecy is directly quoted by Paul and by Peter both in the New Testament. Paul comes along in Romans chapter 9, verse 31, and says this, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, and Paul quotes Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Look at verse 16 in Isaiah. Follow it as I read Paul's quote. Paul says, quote, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Is this a misquote? Because if you're reading Isaiah 28.16, it's not exactly the same as what Paul quotes. Uh-oh, is that a problem? Not at all. What Paul's doing here speaking by the Holy Spirit Himself, by the way, is He's combining Isaiah 28.16 and Isaiah 8.14. He's putting the two verses together. 
Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, in the book of Emmanuel, speaking of Emmanuel, says, He shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Hey, what? Paul knows his Isaiah. Paul knows his Bible. He's drawing both these verses together in a prophetic way to make a statement about Israel that God said, I lay in Zion a stone, but it is a stumbling stone. It is a rock of offense. But to those who believe, they won't be disappointed. Paul puts the two verses together, pointing out that if you try to make Jesus into religion, you will stumble. Has that happened in the church? The religious church. Christianity as a religion. Catholicism as a religion. So many different arms of Christendom that have tried to make Jesus a religious practice and it doesn't work. It fails. People wonder, why am I not more content in my life? I go to church every week. I do all the right things. I follow the sacraments. I do this. I do that. I'm busy in ministry. Why am I not content? Because you're trying to make Jesus into a religion. He doesn't want to be a religion. He's not a religion any more than you are. He's a person. And so He wants that relationship and that's what God is offering. But if we make Jesus a religion, we will stumble. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The psalmist writes in the great Hallel Psalm 118 verse 22. So this this cornerstone analogy, it's a big deal to the New Testament writers. Because the point is not the expediency of paganism or legalism or religion. The point is God is offering an everlasting relationship. Come and walk with me, He says. And through Jesus we can. Paul then says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. What is he saying? Relationships. Christ at the center, and each one of us individually coming together as part of this marvelous temple. And he's the perfect cornerstone. A lot of our stones are chipped and cracked, you know, imperfect. But man, he's building us into this temple anyway. He's drawing us together. When honestly, if it was left up to us, I think we would be blowing each other apart. But He draws us together. Peter continues this line of thought about the costly cornerstone. He quotes from Isaiah, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, "...coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones..." are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, and Peter quotes Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And and that's the difference. Idolatry and religion are always disappointing because they're quick fixes, they're band-aids on wounds that will continue to fester. They never work. Jesus is the foundation stone on which we don't just get a quick fix, but we build an eternal life. A life that goes on forever. Now, one other thing to point out here, Peter in his quote, 
He says, He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Notice Isaiah says, if you're reading the NASB, He who believes in it will not be disturbed. The King James Version, I believe, says confounded. Some other versions may have a different word in there. But is Peter misquoting here? Why is there a difference between what Peter quotes in 1 Peter 2 and what Isaiah says in Isaiah 28.16? For one thing, Peter is probably quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So understand, when you get a slightly different New Testament quote of an Old Testament verse, when you look at it in English, it's not exactly word for word. You're saying, why is that? Well, because the New Testament writers are probably quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So you're getting it translated now, you're two steps down the line from the original language of the Hebrew, you're Greek to English. Doesn't mean it's inaccurate. Doesn't mean it's not what God intends. It just makes sense that that's why there might be slight variations or differences like a word between disturbed or, as Peter says, disappointed. The Greek word that is translated disappointed is, uh, means literally confounded, disappointed, or ashamed. The Hebrew word that Isaiah uses is the word chush. Chush. And I love this word because it literally means to make haste or to hurry. Now think about what we've just been saying. Religion is about expediency. Get it done quick. Get me in the door and out the door so I can know I've had my religion for the week. That's a religion of expediency. Relationship is never hurried. He who believes in Him will not be hurried. If you believe in Jesus, you don't want to rush in and out. You don't want to just pray a couple of words and then move on with life. You're not hurried when you're in a relationship with Jesus. Relationships are never about Rushing, they're about resting. They're about time spent together. That's a relationship. It's not hurried. You don't rush it. You don't hurry it. You hold on to it. And you rest in it. And say, so he who believes in this precious cornerstone will not be hurried. Will not be hasty. You're going to rest in the relationship because that's what it's all about. Just as Jesus said in John 15.4, Abide in me. And I in you. You know, stick around for a while. I've wondered in the past, you know, if and we're finished and we're heading out the door, and, and I sometimes I've had this picture in my heart of Jesus sitting in here in the barn just going, Oh, we're done? Oh, okay. <laughs> See you Wednesday. Or before maybe. If you want coffee, I'm free. A relationship that is never hurried. By the way, back in Isaiah, where is the cornerstone laid? Where does he say the cornerstone is laid? Say it out. In Zion. In Zion. The cornerstone is laid in Zion. What would the people of Judah understand that to mean? This is a stone that is laid in and among us, the Jewish people. If I was Jewish and I heard Isaiah say that and I was a person who truly believed in the Lord and I was following, as undoubtedly there were some, I would have heard that and said, God is giving us a stone. A stone for the Jewish people. And I point that out because there are still those who try to strip this promise away from Israel and hand it solely over to the church. Christ is the cornerstone of the church and Israel is out on their ear. Okay? It's not true. The stone is laid in Zion. 
And Zion is not some spiritual esoteric thing. Zion is Jerusalem. Zion is at the heart of the Jewish people and the cornerstone is laid there because God is clear about His intentions both to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. And the bottom line is, as the verse says, the precious cornerstone is laid in Zion, it's firmly placed for all who believe. He who believes in it, in the cornerstone, in Messiah, in Jesus, will not be hurting, will not be disturbed. Whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, this cornerstone is for you. Now going on in verse 17, he says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Justice the measuring line, righteousness the level. He's talking about the coming kingdom. He's talking about righteousness in the rule of the cornerstone's kingdom. And before Isaiah gets there, he says all deadly pacts and covenants with anything other than God must first be swept away. He says, then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. And the waters will overflow the secret place. The refuge of lies, the secret place, he's talking about the high places of idolatry again. Remember back in verse 15, falsehood and deception. And here he says, refuge of lies, the secret place. He's talking about the people going out to their idols. And he's saying, all that's got to get swept away. In the heart of this woe, God is saying, woe, because i got to do something here I don't want to do. Got to take away your iPods. Yeah, and Xbox, that's going to be off for the rest of the semester. And Oh, I'm sorry, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm confusing myself. God is saying to the people, I'm getting rid of your idols. I have to do it, and you won't do it. So i got to do something here. I don't want to, but I've got to do something here to get rid of this idolatry because as long as idolatry is here, the kingdom's not going to come. And so he enters into this with the people. It's got to be swept away. He says, verse 18, Then your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. The scourge you don't think is going to touch you is going to wipe you out. Because you're standing with the idols, and I'm going to wipe out the idols. He goes on in verse 19, As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning it will pass through. During the day or night. And it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. Notice this. Verse 19 is interesting. He's not talking about a one-time event here. The language is very clear. Morning after morning, during the day or the night... As often as it passes through, this sounds not like a one-time event. The scourge of Assyria in 722, the scourge of Babylon in 586. It's not talking about these single events. The Lord is talking about wave after wave of persecution and pogroms and problems for the Jewish people. And we have watched that happen. Ever since 722 B.C., all the way down to present day, it's been wave after wave, morning after morning, during the day, during the night, sheer terror. And the next verse, he says in verse 20, the bed is too short on which to stretch out, and the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in, and there are a few things more frustrating than that. (laughs) Especially when you're tall like me. You lay down in the bed and the trip in Israel because you want to get some rest and your feet are hanging off by like that far. It's like these people are short. And then you go <laughs> and you go to grab the blanket and you pull it up to your chin to be warm and you look down your feet are bare. 
What is Isaiah saying with this all of a sudden? He's saying, gang, nothing covers. Israel, because of the choices you're making, because of your rejection of the precious cornerstone, nothing's going to cover you. Kabbalah is not going to cover you. The mystical Judaism of today. It's not going to work. Iron Dome will only deflect so many missiles and you will remain an uncovered people. Everything you try, save the precious cornerstone, every other thing will leave you uncovered. Hey, that's the way it is with us. Everything but Jesus leaves us uncovered. It leaves us bare. Only the precious cornerstone provides the cover we need. For the Lord, verse 21 going on, will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do His task, His unusual task, and to work His work, His extraordinary work. And now do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. That is, your chains are going to be tightened. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. Gang, this carries Israel to the very end. The decisive destruction on all the earth speaks of nothing but the tribulation. A final judgment where the whole entire earth is caught up in the wrath of God. And here what Isaiah does in verse 21, in fact, he looks backward to speak of what's coming forward. He looks back to look ahead. What do you mean? Mount Perizim. He says the Lord's going to rise up as at Mount Perizim. What happened there? 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 20. David is newly anointed king of Israel at Hebron. Mount Perizim is not far from Hebron. And there on Mount Perizim, David and the people of Israel defeated the Philistines. And you know what they did? They fled and they left all their idols behind. The unusual work here, the extraordinary work, the unusual task is now God's going to have to do the same thing with His own people to get them to leave all their idols behind. You understand that? He also mentions the Valley of Gabeon. Joshua chapter 10 tells the story. In the Valley of Gabeon, that's where Joshua pulls off a surprise attack against the Amorites. And they're in the Valley of Gabeon. But it's not Joshua who wins the war. It's the Lord, very obviously, because God makes the sun stand still. In that marvelous story. Not just a story, in that marvelous history. God makes the sun stand still. And in addition to that, God chucks massive hailstones down on the fleeing Amorites and wipes them out as they're trying to get away. He wins that war. And so we see two things here. Between Mount Perizim and the Valley of Gibeon, we see one example of people abandoning their idols, which Israel has done. And we see something else of the Lord acting supernaturally to protect His people. Verses 17-22 through 22 here, gang, describe Israel being trampled underfoot from the very rejection of the cornerstone to the point of God's decisive destruction on planet Earth. It's the whole gamut in, in miniature. And His unusual task, His extraordinary work, is the redemption of His people by the precious cornerstone. And we're going to see this more in just a minute. The next word picture. The plowman. And the precious cornerstone, number, number two, we have the plowman. Verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant the seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Or does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat and rose and barley in its place and rye within its area? 
For his God instructs and teaches him properly. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin. The dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue, watch this, he does not continue to thresh it forever. Because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. So he does not thresh it longer. What's he saying here? The, the picture of the plowman is a little miniature parable that Isaiah gives, comparing the plowman to the way God works and plows and tends his people Israel. This example is also like the cornerstone, like the stone. It's used a lot in Scripture. Uh, Jesus himself uses the same image in the parable of the seed and the soils. Remember the parable? Four different kinds of soils, right, that depict the human heart. What is the seed a picture of, Bible students? The Word of God. Mark chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus says, The sower sows the Word. You know, Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 23, You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. So the seed is the Word. And the soil is the heart and its reception of the Word. I think we can take that and from Jesus' commentary, we can go back and understand Isaiah's parable of the plowman. That the seed here is the Word of God. And as he deals with the Word that has been given to his people, he doesn't crush them. He doesn't just wipe them out. He doesn't overthresh them. So here's the wisdom, the wonderful wisdom of God in the plowman. He sows his seed into the soil of Israel. It takes root. So that he does not crush it. He cultivates it. He doesn't overgrind it. He doesn't overthresh it. What's he saying? This whole parable is saying one thing. God will not damage Israel eternally. He's going to work them over. He's going to have to do a little beating, a little clubbing, but he will protect the seed that bursts into faith in the heart of the Jewish people. Jeremiah 46.28 Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you, yet I will not make a full end of you. But I will correct you properly and by no means leave you unpunished. In the prophet Amos chapter 9, verse 9, he says, For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. Matthew 24, 22 tells us, Jesus says, Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, which is Israel, those days will be cut short. Why? Because God's not going to wipe them out. And He makes this promise. And you know, We've got to take God at His word. If God promises this of Israel, we have to accept and and assume that God's not going to wipe out Israel, that He really does have a plan for them. Otherwise, God's a liar. And my God is not a liar. Verse 29, Isaiah, recognizing this, he's just given this parable, he says, This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made His counsel wonderful and His wisdom great. I get this. You know, here's Isaiah writing out his prophecy, and as the ink spills off the quill, he just says, Wow, this is great. This is remarkable. As he's speaking the words the Spirit of God puts into his heart, Isaiah is excited. He's amazed. Kind of like the Apostle Paul 
In Romans 11.33, when he's just expressed God's plan for Israel in a remarkable way, chapter 9, 10, and 11, at the end of that, Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Paul's saying, look at what He's doing with the Gentile nations and with Israel. Look at the beauty and the perfection of His plan. Wow! And it's ironic because Paul's the one who just wrote it down. But he recognizes this did not come from his own head. This is the stuff of the Spirit of God. And it is marvelous and it is wonderful. The word for wisdom in verse 29 at the end of the chapter, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. It's a cool word. In the Hebrew it's tushia, and it's wisdom that advances. It's practical wisdom. It's wisdom that does something. It's not just wisdom that sits around in an ivory tower and pontificates. It's wisdom on the move. It's God's wisdom at work in Israel and the world. By the way, there's practical wisdom in this parable for us as well. This picture of a God who does not damage Israel eternally, guess what? He's not going to damage you eternally either. When we face struggles and hard times and difficulties, when the pressure is on, understand the Lord will not grind you out. In the same way He promises not to do so with Israel. Matthew 3.12, John the Baptist says of Jesus that His winnowing fork is in His hand. And He will thoroughly clear His threshing floor. And He will gather His wheat into the barn, but He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now there are two ways to understand that. The chaff being those who don't come to faith, who don't believe, and the wheat being those who are believers. That's one way to look at it. The other way is to recognize there's chaff in my life that needs burning out. There, I need to be sifted. I need Jesus to take His winnowing fork and toss me up into the air so that the good kernels that He is redeeming land and all the chaff gets blown away and burned up. And for that to happen, it's a little uncomfortable. It's a little painful. It's difficult. Sometimes God will have to grind, but He will not grind you. He will not grind me out. He will not overthresh. I love the promise in Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So if you're a bruised reed right now, if you're feeling severely bent, you know, if you're a dimly burning wick, you know there are those times in all of our lives where it's like, it's all I can do to get out the door and get to Bible study. It's all I can do to get out of bed this morning and, and accept that God is still in charge of my life. When you're that dimly burning wick, understand He's not going to extinguish you. His heart is for you. He's doing a work in your life, but He's not going to put you out. Going on to chapter 29, we come to yet another word picture here. Verse 1, he says, Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped, Add year to year. Observe your feasts on schedule. Ariel, there's a town in Israel today called Ariel. It's not the same town that's being talked about here in verse 1. Ariel in the Hebrew means lion or lion of God. But that's not the word picture. I hear that, Ariel. I think lion of God and I immediately think of Jesus. You know, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5. But Jerusalemites, hearing Ariel, hearing that word used, hearing the Lion of God 
R-E-L, they would think of Jerusalem at the heart, at the center of Judah. Okay, Judah was the tribe whose, whose symbol was that of a lion. And so Ariel, oh, is he talking about the Lion of Jerusalem? You know, Jerusalem at our heart. The capital city, mighty Jerusalem. And they're absolutely right. That's exactly who he's talking to with this next woe. Jerusalem specific. But he calls Jerusalem Ariel. And he says, here's where David once camped. Indeed, David did. Building the city of David there in Jerusalem. But he also says, add year to year and observe your feasts on schedule. And even today, Jerusalem adds year to year and observes its feasts on schedule. There is still Shavuot, there's still Sukkot, Yom Kippur. All of the feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, all these things go on annually in Israel, in Jerusalem today. And they're still going on. But Isaiah is using another word play here. And it becomes clear in the second verse. I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. She'll be like an Ariel. The Hebrew word Ariel means two things. Lion of God is one use. But the word also means hearth of God. Not heart, hearth. And so the next picture here is that, I guess the third one, of a pyre. A pyre, a a funeral pyre, a hearth, a burning furnace. Why would Jerusalem be called Ariel, the hearth or the pyre of God? Because the temple was there. And there at the temple was the altar of sacrifice. And it was there in the heart of Jerusalem, on the temple mount, at the temple, where the hearth of God stood, the altar of sacrifice. The burning that was continual going up from that altar. But in this woe, all of Jerusalem, not just the altar, all of Jerusalem becomes a burning hearth, a pyre of judgment and wrath. Verse 3, I will camp against you, encircling you. Then I will set siege works against you. I will raise up battle towers against you. Then you will be brought low. From the earth you will speak, and from the dust where you are prostrate, your words will come. Your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground. And because of verse 4, we recognize verse 3 is not talking about when Assyrius encamped around Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day. That story is up and coming in the book of Isaiah, by the way. He's not talking about it. He's talking about Babylon. He's talking about Rome. He's talking about even further out than that. When the nations of the world will be gathered against the hearth of God against Jerusalem and a burning will again take place. But but there's something else I want you to see here. Something I need to point out to you. Dave knows this. Mormonism takes verse 4 and uses it. Teaching that Isaiah chapter 29 verse 4 is a prophecy of the coming of the book of Mormon. Let me read verse 4 to you again and listen to it. Then you will be brought low from the earth. You will speak from the dust where you are prostrate. Your words will come. Your spirit will also be like that of a spirit from the ground. And your speech will whisper from the dust. Your spirit. This spirit's going to speak. Come up out of the ground and speak. The spirit. Now, here's the problem with taking things out of context. You get entire religions from them. 
The context of this is talking to Israel about Jerusalem. It is very specific and it's unavoidable if you read the whole passage and understand what the prophet is saying. Joseph Smith comes along and says, no, 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 no. This is a prophecy of the Book of Mormon. How so? I've never quoted from the Book of Mormon. I'm going to do it tonight. 2 Nephi chapter 26, verses 7 and 8 tells us that the Book of Mormon would be, quote, as one that hath a familiar spirit. The claim of these two verses in the Book of Mormon is that the Book of Mormon shares a familiar spirit with the Holy Bible. Saying that the familiar spirit of of God's Word, the Bible, is the same familiar spirit that has brought about the Book of Mormon. Here's the problem. The Hebrew word, and if Joseph Smith had known his Hebrew, perhaps he wouldn't have chosen this verse. The Hebrew word for familiar spirit or for spirit in Isaiah 29.4 is ob or obi. As in obi, Juan Kenobi, I guess, would be a familiar spirit. Ob or obi means literally a dead spirit. In fact, it has to do with necromancy. The spirits of the dead, ghosts from the grave, calling up the dead. Here's what the Bible has to say about Ob or Obi. Leviticus 19.31 Do not turn to mediums, literally those who have an Ob, or spiritists, do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 20, verse 27. A man or a woman who is a medium, that is, who has an Ob, a dead spirit, Or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guilt is upon them. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19. He says, when they say to you, consult the mediums. The word there is familiar spirit. Consult the obes. And the spiritist who whisper and mutter. Isaiah says, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Obi is a dead spirit. The spirit of Isaiah 29.4 is not Ruach Yahweh, that is, the spirit of God. The spirit of the Lord, the living breath, the spirit of God who gives us the word of God. Totally different spirit. The spirit behind the Bible, the spirit of the Lord, is living, alive. Like the wind that blows, always active, the spirit of God. The spirit of the Book of Mormon, and I will give this one to Joseph Smith, the spirit of the Book of Mormon is a dead spirit. It is a false spirit. And it is not one to be trusted or believed. What Isaiah is saying here, back to Isaiah, and that's just a little piece of Roman uh, Mormon trivia for you, but what Isaiah is saying is that Jerusalem, you're going to be left like a ghost town. You're going to be wiped out. And the only sounds will be the muttering of dead spirits. It's just not a pretty picture that he's painting. It's that of a funeral pyre. Mormonism is way off. But here in this burning image of a hearth, of a funeral pyre, the faithfulness and the love of God, amazingly, it shines through. It emerges again for His people. Look at verse 5. But the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust. And the multitude of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away. And it will happen instantly. Suddenly, He says. Verse 6. For the Lord of hosts, or from the Lord of hosts, you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire. And the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, God's hearth, 
Even all who wage war against her and her stronghold and who distress her will be like a dream, a vision of the night. It will be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he's eating. But when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he's drinking. But when he awakens, behold, he is faint, and his thirst is not quenched. Thus the multitude of all the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. This is great. I'm going to let Victor Buxbazen describe this to you, explain it in his own words. This is from his commentary. He says, Isaiah describes the pending siege and humiliation of Jerusalem by a horde of hostile invaders, which will be as thick as fine dust. The city, once so joyful and full of clamor and noise, will whisper from the ground as if it were a habitation of ghosts. But when all will appear lost, and the proud city about to be violated by the invaders, God will visit Jerusalem with thunder and earthquake. In the hour of their seeming triumph, the enemies of Zion will wake up as if from a dream, but their expectation of victory shall turn into a nightmare. So God says, Jerusalem, you are my hearth. You will be a place of burning. Sacrifice happens there, but it's going to burn. The city's going to burn. You're going to see it fall. Babylon's going to do it. Rome's going to do it. You're going to see the city fall again. But those who come against you are going to experience a far greater fall. In fact, let me just read this to you. Zechariah chapter 12 describes this specifically. Where the prophet says in verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the people around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Listen, in that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem will dwell on their own sites again in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is Ariel, the hearth of God, place of sacrifice at the temple, the place of Babylonian burning, the place of Jesus' sacrifice, where the full wrath, the burning wrath of God will be poured out on Jesus there in Jerusalem. The place of burning again at the hands of Rome. But ultimately, Jerusalem will be the place of the Jewish salvation and the fiery judgment against all nations. And so the picture holds true throughout. Now in verse 9, Isaiah decries Judah yet again. Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and He has covered your heads, the seers. 
We read a little further on. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to one who's literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I can't, for it's sealed. When the book is given to one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, he will say, I can't read. (laughs) Paul talks about this. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, their minds were hardened. Until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Paul talks about it. He covers it also in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The same issue. That their hearts are hardened until the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. The hardening of the heart of Israel. Why? Why did the veil come? Why does God choose this people and then only harden their hearts? Why did He seal these things in judgment of the people of Israel? Verse 13, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor Me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from Me. And their reverence for Me consists of tradition learned. Get it? Religion instead of relationship. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Matthew, chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. Mark, chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus directly quotes this from Isaiah. He quotes this whole issue, that the people draw near to me with their words, they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. Jesus says this. He's getting on to the Pharisees. He draws from Isaiah and he says, your hearts are not even close. It's all religion, it's all legalism with you. Your hearts are not near me. Is your heart near him or is it far from him? See, that's the issue. It's not the keeping of the religious activity. It's where's your heart? How close is your heart? Now, one of the best ways to measure this is to measure your love. It's to ask the question, is your love for the Lord happening in your love for people? When Jesus is getting on to the Pharisees, the issue is the Pharisees are not loving the people. They're keeping the religion. And they're making the religion hard on the people. And so they have no love for the people. And Jesus says, your hearts are are far from me. Now, if I was a Pharisee in that day, I might have said, well, Jesus, I hardly even know you. And his response would be, how are you treating my brothers? How are you, Matthew 25, how are you treating the least of these brothers of mine? You can measure your love for God based on your love for His people. Actually, based on your love for all people. I hate this phrase, this saying, but it's accurate. It's not Scripture, but it's a good one. I just hate it. You only love God as much as the person you love the least. That's a killer statement. And when I think about that and I process that, I am so thankful for God's grace because there are some people I don't love nearly as much as I claim to love God. But the reality is I can test, I can measure how close my heart is to God based on how much love I am giving to people. 
the more loving I am toward others, whoever they might be, the closer my heart is to God. The further my love from other people, the further my heart from God. It works exactly like that. In fact, isn't that the verse we opened up with? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's what Isaiah is saying, and that's what Jesus is saying through this same verse. Israel is distant from God. Their heart's far from Him because it's not an issue of love, it's an issue of legalism and works, and that's where they miss the whole boat. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, not just speaking of Israel, but speaking of mankind, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false. And God is not destroying free will here. Actually, He's honoring choices people make. And those who say, I don't want the truth. I don't want to live by the truth. Keep the Bible away from me. I don't desire to walk in absolutes. God will say to them, fine. Fine. Then you can live under delusion. It's the choice we make, one way or another, either to choose the truth or to choose the lie, to choose to love or to choose to hate. Either way, God leaves the choice with us. Now, on the heels of this indictment is one more woe and the fourth and final picture. Verse 15. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. (laughs) Isn't it amazing? I mean, God just nails it, doesn't He? Or what is formed? Say to Him who formed it, He has no understanding. What does humanity say about God right now? What does the evolutionist say? He did not make me. Really, Clay? You're going to say this to the potter? I mean, there's outrage here. And God is speaking not only to Israel. This is a broad statement, gang. Really? The created is going to say to the creator, you didn't create me? So the fourth and, and, and final parabolic picture here is the potter. God as the potter, the maker. Now, in Israel, drawing back historically what's happening here in Isaiah, there's a bit of international intrigue going on. You see, there are people within the government of Judah who are trying to cut backroom deals and alliances with Egypt. They're going behind the back of Isaiah because they know what Isaiah is going to say. So quietly, out of sight, they're promising to be you know, more flexible when they get a second term. They're going to the people outside, the enemy. And they're saying, hey, we can work a deal here. We, we can cut a deal here. If you don't know what I was just talking about, just watch the news. Here's the thing. They actually think they are out of sight. They're getting away with something. God doesn't know what we're doing over here in the back room, what we're quietly saying. He's not aware of the alliances. And so Isaiah comes out and says, Really? Really? Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That one is made would say to his maker, he did not make. You don't think God knows exactly what's going on? And Isaiah's going to totally, totally open this whole thing up. When we get to chapter 30, 
He's going to point out, you're going down to Egypt to make alliances. I know this. God knows this. Well, who do you think you're kidding? But he lays it out to Israel and he says, nothing is ever out of God's sight. Nothing. He is aware of everything. You're not getting away with a thing. And by the way, turn over to Romans 9 for a minute. Turn to Romans 9. You've got to see this with your own eyes. Paul takes this same section, this same example of the potter. And in context, in talking about Israel, Paul pulls it back out to use it. Again, Paul knows his Isaiah. And while it's not a direct quote, he takes the example, the parable of the potter, and he applies it here. Romans chapter 9, verse 20. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared for beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. God is doing what God is going to do. And he's the master potter, not you. And this whole plan, God's parallel plan, his program for the church and his program for Israel, gang that are both going on concurrently, God's plan for Jews, Gentiles, Israel, and the church Gang, that's the right of the potter to do it the way he's decided to do it. It is not the right of man to replace Israel with the church or to say that's not the way it works. It works this way over here. Really? You're going to tell the potter how to do his work? He's the maker, not you. And it's interesting to me that Paul takes this very thing, he applies it to Israel, just as Isaiah did in chapter 29. By the way, for you and for me, don't forget that we are just lumps of clay. And we have been formed by the potter, and we have been fired, you know, in the furnace of challenge and difficulty and the reality of life. But gang, once that happens, we become these these vessels. These vessels with a treasure inside. Jars of clay with the treasure of the glory of the Spirit of God in us. And so walking with Jesus, we don't have to say, God, what are you doing? We don't have to second-guess God or question or wonder what God is up to. Guess what? When His Spirit fills you, vessel made from clay, when you have His Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? (laughs) We have the mind of Christ. How is it that we get what's going on? Because God has revealed it. And so we're not second-guessing the potter. We are in step with the potter. And we are telling our Maker, God, may it be exactly as You have planned. And all this that You have been revealing to us through Your Word and by Your Spirit, may it be that way. Now we're going to finish quickly because here is the love of God. In all of these woes, He never seems to let these warnings go too far without offering grace. 
And you'll see this again and again in Isaiah. We've already seen it many times. He's laying out some severe judgment, some severe warning, and then all of a sudden he's talking about the millennial kingdom. (laughs) Or he's waylaying Judah with threats and dangers, and here's what's coming because you've rejected me. And then, as we saw earlier, therefore, I'm going to give you a cornerstone. And here again he does this. As this chapter closes out, he salts the woes with grace. He paints a picture of the dynamic of grace in the coming kingdom. Watch this, verse 17. Is it not just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered a forest? Number one, nature will be affected. There's going to be an impact on the nature of things in the world. He says here in verse 17, Lebanon in the north. At the time of Isaiah's writing, Lebanon was occupied and trashed by Assyria. Think about Occupy Wall Street, but stick that in Lebanon. Okay, The place was just wiped out. The Assyrians were up there. They were trashing the beauty of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. It was a mess. And Isaiah says, Lebanon, it's going to be beautiful again. It's going to grow into a fertile field. And the fertile field, he says, will be considered a forest. Many scholars believe that the fertile field here is referring to Mount Carmel. That this fertile field kind of coming down from Lebanon, Mount Carmel, will be a forest. Which is very interesting to me because it's already being forested today. Heavily. If you see that in Israel, Mount Carmel is covered with trees. It is thick. It is spoken of as a forest there in Israel. Nature will be affected. Nature will be impacted. The presence of God does that, gang. Verse 18. On that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. So nature will be affected. Secondly, healing will be enacted. As the kingdom comes in, healing comes with it. Which should tell us something. Side note, if we're already walking as citizens of the kingdom, shouldn't healing accompany that? Healing is an aspect of the kingdom. And we saw it first with Jesus Himself. Now, Isaiah's talking about the removal of Israel's blindness and deafness. You know, when the veil is lifted and they finally see the Lord. However, when Jesus came healing the blind and the deaf and the lame, there were people in His day who were looking at that and saying, this is what Isaiah said. This is messianic. This guy is fulfilling Isaiah 29.18. He's fulfilling Isaiah 35, verse 5. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Uncle Bob, who couldn't speak all his life, now we can't shut him up. <laughs> because he's just shouting for joy. And Jesus did this, and all of this healing that went on, gang, it was the introduction of the kingdom of God. Remember the first words out of Jesus' mouth in ministry? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he began to show the dynamics of the kingdom. Nature will be affected. Isaiah says, healing will be enacted. And what Jesus did was symbolic of the coming kingdom, but also a picture of what we would do as his followers, and that is see and be involved in lives being healed. Physically, spiritually, Mentally, all the way around. Healing will be enacted. Verse 19. The afflicted will also increase their gladness in the Lord. The needy 
of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Gadosh Israel. Nature will be affected. Healing will be enacted. Number three, the needy will be uplifted. A sign of the kingdom. A dynamic of the kingdom. Why do we have all these entitlement programs? I'll tell you part of the problem. Part of the reason. My opinion. Church wasn't doing its work. So the government stepped in and started to do it. It is the church's work to uplift the needy. It is the church's work to move in benevolence. It is the church's work to care for those who are poor and hurting and without. That's our job. It's not Washington's job. It belongs to us. I think I've told you before, I was so frustrated as a youth pastor in Virginia trying to set up service projects because everywhere I called to set up a service project, there were government forms that had to be filled out before I would be allowed to serve. That was frustrating. That's not the way it ought to be. The needy are uplifted when the kingdom is coming into play. And think about this. Didn't the needy all rejoice in the presence of Jesus? Man, when Jesus came around, it was like, yes. They were excited. They came from everywhere. The needy will be uplifted. Verse 20. For the ruthless will come to an end and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. Who cause a person to be indicted by a word and ensnare him who adjudicates at the gate and defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments. That is not a verse that would make a lawyer comfortable. (laughs) Rights being stripped by legal loopholes. Good news. It's going to be over in the kingdom. It ain't happening in the righteous kingdom of Jesus Christ. But I want you to note something here. The word ruthless, the ruthless. Some of your King James versions say correctly, the terrible one. It is the word aritz in Hebrew. It's in the singular, masculine, noun form of the word aritz, the terrible one. Some believe, and I agree, this is Satan. That the terrible one will come to an end and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. And so, gang, number four in this little list of the dynamics of the kingdom, the terrible one will be incarcerated. He's going to be incarcerated. Now, this phrase in the Hebrew, come to an end, also means brought to failure. He will have failed when he is chained up, bound, put into the abyss. Revelation 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain was in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, to bound him for a thousand years. He will be brought to failure. All of his attempts to circumvent the perfect prophecies and faithfulness of God will fail. The terrible one comes to an end. In verse 22, Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands, in his midst, they will sanctify my name. 
Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth and those who criticize will accept instruction. So the dynamics of the kingdom, nature will be affected, healing will be enacted, the needy will be uplifted, the terrible one will be incarcerated, and the Jewish people, number five, will be vindicated in the coming kingdom. You know what's so cool about this? If you ever wondered if the schemer, Jacob, if he made it into eternity, if we would see him in heaven, Isaiah tells us right here we will. Because he says, when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Isaiah points to a time yet future when Jacob sees all Israel who Paul says will be saved. That remnant of Israel, when he sees them, his offspring, Jacob's own, they will all glorify the Lord. And there's one last thing I've got to point out to you here that's marvelous. Note this, Kadosh Israel from verse 19 is now in verse 23. Indeed, they will sanctify Kadosh Yaakov. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. Jacob, Why? Again, because the entire line of old Jacob is now redeemed. Jacob redeemed. And we talked about this, wow, years ago. But Jacob is the carnal man. Israel is the spiritual man. God took Jacob the carnal man and made him Israel the spiritual man. And so when we hear about Israel, anytime Jacob is referred to as Israel, God is looking at him spiritually as redeemed. But now, the carnal man has been redeemed. Now God is happy to be called the Holy One of Jacob because the whole line of Jacob at that point comes into their full redemption. No wonder God speaks in woes because He truly does love His people. And by the way, God really loves you. Let me just leave you with that thought tonight. God really loves you.